0: This is 100 Years of Cox. My name is Frances Thompson, and in this podcast, I read the budget letters written by the 10 Rachel Cox siblings through the letters they wrote to each other. Edmund is my great grandfather, the other nine siblings are my great granduncles and my great grand aunts. The last time I was reading from the budget letters we were in February 1910 and there'd just been a general election where there was a hung parliament but the Liberal Party managed to retain power and Herbert Asquith continued as Prime Minister, although parliament was in crisis and another general election was soon to occur in December 1910. In February of 1910, with regards to the 10 Matricock siblings, Neville, sibling number four, was at home in England having left South Africa, fed up with the politics there. Edmund, number two, continued to be predictably useless, keeping the budget too long, and then he didn't write much. He was so angry about the political discussion in the letters that he said he almost put the offending pages on the fire. Avis, sibling number nine, is still a governess, teaching little Marjorie, known as Billy, in Tarpoli a little village in Cheshire. She's just got engaged to Cecil, the Irishman who was previously a teacher at Mount House School in Plymouth, which is where Arthur, number three, is headmaster. Avis calls him Tertius, but the rest of the family call him Cecil. Dr Cox thinks it should be pronounced Cecil, but the fiancé of Avis is actually Albert Victor Cecil. It's likely he was named Albert Victor after the eldest son of King Edward VII who was the heir to the throne until he died of influenza, meaning George V, their second son, became king in 1910, Albert from Prince Albert and Victor from Queen Victoria. If you're interested, do some reading on Edward VII's eldest son. There are fascinating rumours about him being not very well educated, that he was gay, rumours about brothel visits, and conspiracy theories about Jack the Ripper. When he died, in 1892 of Influenza, he was engaged to Princess Mary, who later married his brother, later to become George V. It's all quite a fascinating saga. Incidentally, I've never met anyone else called Avis, which is apparently the correct pronunciation. I've been saying it incorrectly, and have been corrected by newly discovered distant family members. Enid, sibling number one, she's still in Liverpool, married to Cyril. Arthur, number three, is still in Plymouth at Mount House School, married to Dorothy. Wilfred, number five, is on his way back to England from Canada, although it sounds like an unplanned visit, as letters say Wilfred arrived unexpectedly. Bernard, number six, is still a stockbroker in the City of London. Aldwyn, number seven, is still in Nyasaland in Africa. Today the country is Malawi. And Cuthbert, number eight, is still teaching at Berkhamstead School. And Vera, sibling number 10, is still playing a lot of hockey and doing her best to look after Dr Cox, the grumpy father of the 10 siblings. I'm going to jump ahead to May 1910 and Vera's interesting budget letter describing the funeral procession of King Edward VII. But before I do that, this is briefly what has been happening in March and April of 1910 in the letters that I'm missing out. There was a rubber boom on the stock exchange. It sounds quite chaotic. People from all walks of life were buying shares in rubber. Bernard's stockbroking firm was extremely busy and I expect was earning a tidy profit. Various members of the family have been to watch a lot of hockey, rugby and football, and several brothers think ladies' hockey is more interesting to watch than men's hockey. Dr Cox has had a heart attack, but things don't sound too bad. He looks older and more frail, but apart from that is his usual voluble self. He will live for another nine years to the end of World War One. The siblings still can't agree whether they should discuss politics in the budget or not. Bernard gives this quotation from Shakespeare, Henry IV, which he thinks should apply to the budget. It will be argument for a week, laughter for a month, and a good jest for ever. Cuthbert has moved lodgings again in Berkhamstead. He's now living at Number 7 Chapel Street. His sitting room and bedroom are much larger and nicer, but his new landlady is not a very good cook. Arthur and Dorothy went to Crackington for Easter, staying at Luden Farm again and sleeping in a railway carriage out the back. Arthur's family will continue to regularly visit Crackington, on the north coast of Cornwall, for another 30 years. Robert Baden-Powell has been to inspect the Boy Scouts in Plymouth, and the Scout troop from Mount House School helped to form the Guard of Honour. In March 1910, Bernard was at the Brooklyn Nursing Home in Sydenham, having his appendix removed and Vera was also at the same nursing home, although no one says exactly why. Wilfred arrived back in England from Canada, just in time to see Neville, before Neville got on a ship to sail to Canada. Neville did not recognise Wilfred in the slightest, but it had been ten years since they'd seen each other. Wilfred writes a budget letter, saying father is quite bucked up about Burr which I think means Bernard was getting better and his appendix surgery had gone well. Vera ran up Sydenham Hill from the nursing home, declaring she is fit enough for hockey, and she played at the Ladies' International Hockey match at Richmond, where England ladies beat Scotland ladies easily 6 nil. Bernard has been a splendid patient at the nursing home, and the nurses were full of praise. Vera was uneasy, as Burr previously said, If I meet a pretty nurse, I may get engaged. Vera absolutely couldn't cope with sharing a house with irascible Dr Cox without Bernard. I reckon Bernard knew he was gay, but he kept it secret, as it was, of course, against the law. He probably had no intention of getting involved with any of the nurses at the Brooklyn nursing home, no matter how attractive they were. Edmund spent a brief visit with the family in Sydenham and attempted to complete all the jigsaws in the house. He walked from the station to the family home on Longton Avenue, passing Wilfrid on the street, who had a bushy beard, and Edmund didn't recognise him either. In April 1910, Avis was at the seaside at Torquay, helping to look after Bernard, who was convalescing there, after his appendix was removed. It was quite the fashion to go to the seaside and take the sea air whilst recovering. Edward VII was the eldest son of Queen Victoria, and there are some similarities with King Charles III, as Edward VII was Prince of Wales and heir to the throne for almost 60 years. He became king in January 1901 when he was 59 years old after the death of Queen Victoria. Incidentally, Bernard said in a letter that he watched the funeral procession of Queen Victoria from a stand of seats in the Edgware Road in 1901, just like a group of the siblings watched a similar procession carrying the coffin of Edward Seventh in 1910. But the siblings had not started writing the budget in nineteen o one that started in nineteen o six, so we don't have a record of that funeral procession in the budget archive. Edward the Seventh died on May the sixth, nineteen ten, having been king for less than ten years. Cuthbert is the first sibling to mention the king's death, saying that Parsons, another Berkhamstead teacher as justice of the peace, will be reading the pro- proclamation. For George V at Berkhamstead on Friday May the 15th and the Berkhamstead School Army Corps will of course be on parade to assist. In London, the proclamation was read at St James's Palace on May the 7th, the day after the death of the King. In the following week, the proclamation was read in country towns like Berkhamstead. Interestingly, after the death of Queen Victoria, In January 1901, the coronation of Edward VII was scheduled for June 1902. But two days before the coronation, Edward was diagnosed with appendicitis, and emergency telegrams were dispatched across the Commonwealth. The King had surgery on his appendix, apparently on a table in the music room at Buckingham Palace, and within 24 hours of the surgery, Edward VII was sitting up in bed smoking a cigar. His coronation then took place, two months late, in August 1902. As the son of Queen Victoria, Edward VII was related to almost all the European monarchs, many of whom were at his funeral in 1910. Just like the funeral of Elizabeth II in 2022, there were enormous numbers of royals, monarchs and dignitaries at the funeral in 1910. But World War I was fast approaching, And never again were so many European royals and high-ranking people gathered in the same place at the same time. 1910 was the first time a royal coffin lay in state in Westminster Hall. Previously the coffin of former Prime Minister William Gladstone lay in state in Westminster Hall in 1898. Thousands of people filed past Edward's coffin exactly as occurred with Elizabeth II in 2022. I've never been inside Westminster Hall, but a few weeks after George V's funeral, Burr wrote a budget letter in February 1936 about what a vast and noble building Westminster Hall is. He said there were brass plates on the floor showing where the coffins of Gladstone and Edward VII previously lay in state. Bernard said he made no attempt to see either the lying in state or the funeral procession of George V as the crowds were so enormous. After George V died in January 1936, his son Edward VIII became king. He abdicated a few months later to marry Wallace Simpson, and George VI, father of Elizabeth II, became king in December 1936. It was considered a tumultuous year, with three kings in quick succession. Back to May 1910 and Edward VII. His funeral procession took place on Friday 20th of May and Vera wrote all about it. Vera's letter, Sydenham, May 21st, 1910. Dear family, This letter is just going to be an account of the funeral procession of King Edward VII and how we saw it. As I expect several of you know, Enid came up for it and Bernard got us four very good seats in the Edgware Road. Wilfred, Enid, Vera and Bernard. Although it is not a swagger neighbourhood, I should think they were about the best seats of any along the route. The street is not very wide the houses are close onto the streets, so that seat holders get a very near view. Then, luckily, ours was a small stand with an awning, built up outside a restaurant, so that we got what air there was to be had, and were sheltered from the sun, a great consideration, as it was a blazing hot day. We left Upper Sydenham by the 6.15 train, and before we got to Victoria it was crowded, as many as 18 in a carriage in the front part of the train. We were fortunate enough to get an open carriage at Victoria, and we had a very nice drive along part of the route, right to our seats in Edgware Road. Some of the houses, particularly in Park Lane, were very tastefully decorated with purple draperies, and in a few instances, black. Even at that hour, the crowd was simply enormous. We arrived opposite our seats about 730 but the difficulty was to get to them, the pavement being almost blocked with a solid standing mass of people. We had to drive down a side street and then try to work our way back along the pavement. Our seats were close to where Cambridge Street intersects Edgware Road, and the crowd was enormous there. Working our way round the corner was rather alarming, and I was really a little frightened. Enid was nearly flattened out at one moment. However, we emerged safely from the scrum And were thankful to get into our restaurant, where we at once had breakfast, before going to our seats. We had brought books to read, as we thought we should get very bored before half past eleven, when the procession was timed to pass. But we never even looked at them. The scene was far too interesting. I've never seen such a huge crowd in my life. It was simply marvellous. Every scrap of space, from the pavement to the roofs of the houses, was occupied. And long before the procession came, the street below us was absolutely impassable. I should have been very frightened of being in the crowd. The heat was overpowering and the pressure must have been very bad. I can't think how any woman could stand it. The crowd at the corners several times got quite out of control and swayed in the most dangerous fashion. It was constantly encroaching on the road and bursting through the row of policemen, And two rows of soldiers and then the police and soldiers simply leant back on the crowd and pushed for all they were worth till they were gradually sent back onto the pavement again people fainted in all directions and it was wonderful to see how the police managed to make an opening in the crowd so that the ambulance men could get in to take the person away on a stretcher from our stand and I think from a great many houses along the route, glasses of water were being handed to the crowd all the time. The police and soldiers, and also the people, were wonderfully patient, and I think scarcely a person lost their temper, and they did not shove or push recklessly. Several of the soldiers lining the route were overcome by the heat, and quite collapsed. At last, at about half past eleven, the head of the procession came in view and I think one of the most impressive things of the whole ceremony was the entire absence of cheering and the almost absolute silence of the vast crowd. As body after body of soldiers went by, one could not help being struck by the thought of what a splendid looking lot of men they were and the horses were really beautiful. One could scarcely associate such a blaze of colour with a funeral procession. Everything was so very magnificent, and when at last the coffin came, there was a sense of disappointment. It seemed insignificant, and the gun carriage was so small. People were so busy trying to make out the various notabilities that they'd almost forgotten the object of the procession, and the coffin seemed to come suddenly as a sort of reproof. At least, that was rather my own feeling, and it was not until the closed carriages came, with the ladies, all in black, that once more one thought of the solemnity of the occasion, and the extraordinary silence of the crowds struck one afresh. There was only one band playing, as the procession came past us, and though it was very beautiful music, it was not a funeral march, which I always think is so sad and impressive. Of the people in the first part of the procession, I specially noticed the Duke of Norfolk, who did not seem to me nearly such an ugly man as people make out, Earl Rosebery, who looked very fine in a splendid uniform, Lord Kitchener, Lord Roberts, Sir John Fisher, and Viscount Althorpe. Of the kings, those that I specially looked at were our own and the Kaiser. He looked very fine, but greyer and older than I expected. King Alfonso, King Manuel and a fat, pale-faced boy. King Hakon and the Turkish Crown Prince. I noticed the latter because he was the only one who seemed to be thoroughly enjoying himself and it looked rather out of place to see him laughing and talking to the King of Belgium. Of course, when the carriages came, you could not see much of the occupants. But the first two were glass coaches and Queen Alexandra was quite recognisable in the first and Queen Mary and the little Princess Mary and Prince Edward in the second. I saw Prince Edward well. He is a healthy looking typical English boy, very like his photographs, but rather heavy looking, I thought. I recognised Roosevelt quite easily in one of the later carriages. He appeared to be in evening dress. When the last of the procession had disappeared, it seemed to have gone so quickly that one could scarcely realise that actually it had taken 40 minutes for it to pass. The crowd dispersed in a most orderly way after the procession had gone, and the streets soon began to thin out, so that after we had had lunch, we were able to make our way back to Victoria on foot, without any inconvenience, and so home again by train, quite comfortably, before three o'clock. We all found that doing it quite comfortably, as we had, we were pretty tired. So what those people felt like, who stood in the street for hours, I can't imagine. The cabby who took us to our seats in the morning was rather amusing, as when Burr asked him how much it was, he didn't say any sum, but just asked Burr to give him as much as he could. I've just told father that I've written two sheets for the budget, About the procession, and he is very squashing. He can't imagine why I should write about it when there are so many good accounts in the papers, which everyone can read. That point of view never struck me, but I can't unwrite it now, and so hope you won't be very bored. I've not yet looked at a paper myself this morning. I'm putting in a programme of the procession, as I dare say the foreign members of the budget will like to see it. I am passing on the budget to Wilfred. He really ought to have had it before me and then I'm sending it on to Edmund with a stamped address envelope and instructions to May to see that it is sent on in one week whether Edmund has written or not if she will kindly do so. Then after this time perhaps Edmund will definitely decide whether he would rather give it up or not. It does seem to me a thousand pities that anyone should drop out. Your loving sister, Vera M. M. Cox. Vera helpfully enclosed an official programme in the budget, which cost sixpence, and is safely preserved in the Maitre Cox Budget Archive in the Bodleian Library. There are several black and white films online showing the 1910 funeral procession, and if you watch one of them, you can really get a sense of this huge event, with crowds of people lining the streets to watch the Royal Coffin go past on the gun carriage. The procession started with infantry, cavalry, foot guards, Royal Navy, etc. There were military attaches to the foreign embassies, then members of the army and navy from nine different countries. Then came the military bands, the Royal Marine Light Infantry Band and others from the Brigade of Guards, the Royal Engineers and the Royal Artillery. The list says there were four bands in the procession, although Vera says she only heard one band playing and they were not playing solemn funereal music. Then came the Earl Marshal, the Duke of Norfolk. This is an hereditary position and each successive Duke of Norfolk is responsible for arranging big events like royal funeral processions. Lord Denman, captain of the gentlemen at arms, the Earl of Rosebury and Lord Allendale, captain of the Yeomen of the Guard, came next, followed by the gun carriage carrying the royal coffin, escorted by the equerries and gentlemen at arms. The gun carriage in 1910 was pulled through the London streets by horses from the Royal Horse Artillery Detachment. Admiral Prince Louis of Battenberg led the next section of the procession followed by Edward the VII's horse with no rider, with the king's boots put into the stirrups backwards and his little dog Caesar following behind, accompanied by a highlander. There are then various military men before King George V, followed by the Duke of Connaught and the German Emperor. Then more royal equerries, then all the European royals and monarchs, processing in sets of three, the King of Norway, the King of Greece and the King of Spain. Then came the kings of Bulgaria, Denmark and Portugal. Then the Turkish Crown Prince, the King of Belgium and Archduke Ferdinand of Austria, whose assassination was the trigger for the start of World War I. Then Prince Fushimi, Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich of Russia and Duke Doster. Then Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria, the Duke of Sparta and the Crown Prince of Romania. Next came Prince Henry of the Netherlands, Duke Albrecht of Württemberg, and the Crown Prince of Serbia. Then came Prince Henry of Prussia, the Grand Duke of Hesse, and the Grand Duke of mecklenburg Strilitz. Then came Prince George of Saxony, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg, and the reigning Prince of Waldeck and Piemont. And more kept on coming, Mohammed Ali of Egypt, Prince Tsaitau of China, and Prince Charles of Sweden. Then Prince Arthur of Connaught, Prince George of Cumberland, Prince Alexander of Battenberg, Prince Alexander of Teck, Prince Andrew of Greece, Prince Philip of Saxe-Coburg, Prince Christopher of Greece. I won't read all of the names, there are just too many. I've counted 51 men who followed the gun carriage, who were either a king, a prince, a duke, a grand duke or a crown prince. Incidentally, every single one was a man. The women, of course, all followed in the carriages. This was 1910. Two glass carriages, then a further ten carriages, carrying more dignitaries before the final section of the parade, made up of members of the police and the fire brigade. On the back page of the official programme is a list of the route, with the expected timings. It was a two-hour parade taking place on a very hot day in May. Why not look at maps and follow the route? The procession left Westminster Hall at 9.50am. It was expected to be at Horse Guards Parade at 10, then the Mow five minutes later, Marlborough Gate at 10.16, St James's Street at 10.21, then Piccadilly at 10.30, Hyde Park Corner at 10.52, and Marble Arch at 11.23, then Oxford and Cambridge Terrace at 11.38, London Street at 11.46, and the procession was expected to arrive at Paddington Station at 11.50am. There had been some road changes in the centre of London. Cambridge Terrace became Sussex Gardens, and Cambridge Street, which was near to where the siblings had their seats, was near to Cambridge Terrace. Vera describes how they got a cab from Victoria Station and went along Park Lane, seeing the fine houses with purple and black drapes hanging from the windows and the balconies. If you find Park Lane on maps, the procession went north to Marble Arch, then on to Edgware Road, where the siblings were watching. The procession then turned left onto Cambridge Terrace, near where Sussex Gardens is today. Then there was a right turn into London Street, before reaching Paddington Station, which is where the Coffin, the New King and all the Royals and Dignitaries boarded a train for Windsor. (laughs) Vera says that Edgware Road is not a swagger neighbourhood, which means it's not posh. But Bernard chose his tickets well, as the road is narrow and the siblings would have had an excellent view. I'm not surprised they didn't even open the books they brought with them, but instead spent hours people-watching. There are no photos in the budget on this occasion, but a year later Bernard also got tickets for his siblings to watch the coronation procession of the new king, and photos survive of that occasion. Vera again wrote another excellent account of what she saw and I expect the covered seats would have been similar for the two processions. Imagine a sloping bank of seats built up over the pavement. These seats had a cover over the top to keep out the sun or the rain and the seats were up high so occupants could see the road well. Bernard would have spent a lot on these tickets. The stand was private and built up over a restaurant, so once the siblings squeezed through the crowds and got inside, they were not bothered by the masses of people outside, could have breakfast in relative peace and quiet, before settling down to watch the spectacle. The crowd in 1910 was enormous. It was possibly larger than the crowd for the Queen's funeral procession in September 22, simply because on that occasion the police closed off the roads very early so the crowds couldn't reach the route of the procession and thousands of people were instead directed to Hyde Park. In 1910 the police were not so coordinated. The streets were very overcrowded and Vera is shocked at the scenes. She was frightened by the crowds and Enid nearly got flattened as they left their cab and tried to get into the restaurant at 7.30 in the morning. Vera describes how every scrap of space, from the pavement to the roofs of the houses, was filled with people. There were people hanging out of the windows and up on the roof, looking down. The siblings were in their seats several hours before the procession came past, and were fascinating watching the crowds. May 20th, 1910, was a hot day, and the crowds were waiting patiently for the king's coffin to come past. Vera didn't see anyone get angry, no one was pushing or shoving, they were just masses of people. The crowds got out of control and swayed dangerously and the police, no doubt with arms interlinked, just leaned backwards into the crowd, pushing the mass of people back onto the pavement and quite likely making the crush even worse. Vera wrote people fainted in all directions and it was wonderful to see how the police managed to make an opening in the crowd so that the ambulance men could get in to take the person away on a stretcher. From our stand and I think from a great many houses along the route glasses of water were being handed to the crowd all the time. I imagine that few people actually live in the buildings lining Edgware Road today Most are now shops and offices, but in 1910 most of them were actual houses and their occupants were handing glasses of water out of the windows for people who were fainting on the pavement outside. When watching the Queen's funeral procession, I was struck by how few people could be seen looking out of the windows along the procession route in central London. The procession came into view at 11.30am. And Vera says the huge crowd became almost completely silent. No one was cheering. The soldiers were a splendid looking lot of men. The horses were beautiful and there was a real blaze of colour which Vera found hardly funereal. Everything looked magnificent and Vera felt shocked when the gun carriage came into view. She says it seemed insignificant and small after the magnificent spectacle of soldiers, uniforms and horses. I get the impression that Vera and her siblings were busy trying to spot all the famous people below them, all the kings and dukes and princes. They were then shocked to see the gun carriage and the coffin and suddenly remembered that it was supposed to be a sombre occasion. Vera noticed the Duke of Norfolk, who did not seem to be as ugly as people say. She thought Earl Rosebery looked very fine in his splendid uniform. She also noticed Lord Kitchener Lord Roberts, Sir John Fisher and Viscount Althorpe. The kings that Vera noticed in particular were George V and the Kaiser. She wrote, He looked very fine, but greyer and older than I expected. I think she's describing George V. Vera was shocked that the Turkish crown prince seemed to be thoroughly enjoying himself. He was laughing and talking to the King of Belgium during the funeral procession. Then the carriages came past and Vera recognised Queen Alexandra in the first glass coach. In the second glass coach, Vera spotted Queen Mary, wife of the new king, and two of their children, Prince Edward and Princess Mary. Prince Edward was 15 at the time and Mary was aged 13 Prince Edward would grow up to be the monarch who abdicated in 1936. Vera doesn't mention seeing Bertie in the carriage, who would have been 14 and was the second royal child. He became king after his brother Edward abdicated, becoming the father of Elizabeth II. And Vera sounds surprised that Franklin Roosevelt, who she spotted in another carriage, appeared to be wearing evening dress which presumably was not the done thing. He was only 28 years old and he wouldn't become US President for decades. My wealthy family continue to be not bothered by the crowds as their tickets enable them to enjoy lunch in the restaurant downstairs. So by the time they emerge out onto the street again, the crowds have dispersed and they're able to walk back to Victoria to catch the train home to Sydenham. Vera is writing her letter the morning after the Royal Funeral Procession, and describes how she's just told Dr Cox she's written all about it in her budget letter. She wrote two sheets, which actually means she's written eight pages. A sheet of notepaper in the early 1900s was folded like a birthday card. You wrote on the front, then there were two more pages inside, then you turned it over and wrote on the back. That was one sheet of notepaper. Cantankerous Dr Cox has been rather squashing. Poor Vera. My dear girl, how ridiculous. Why on earth have you written so much about the royal procession in your budget letter? Dr Cox may have been scornful or abrupt or just plain rude to his daughter. He says that the siblings can all read good accounts of the procession in all the newspapers and he can't imagine why she thought it was a good idea to write about it. Well, Dr Cox, I disagree. I'm delighted that Vera wrote so much, as it is the little anecdotes included in a letter which make first-hand accounts so interesting. The details Vera observed make it a fascinating read 112 years later. Besides, official newspaper accounts frequently contain major errors. Vera apologises. I can't unwrite it now, and I hope you won't be bored by what I've written. Astonishingly, she hasn't yet looked at any of the morning newspapers. Her account of the procession, including all the dignitaries she saw, were all named from memory. There were very few photos in the newspapers in 1910 and obviously no TV yet, but Vera knew exactly who King Manuel and King Alfonso were. The official programme is put into the budget. Thank you, Vera. The Foreign Brothers appreciated reading the official programme in 1910, and I appreciated reading it more than 100 years later. Vera is passing the budget on to Wilfred, who has just arrived home, and then the budget will go to Edmund, and he might write a letter, or he might not. And if Edmund doesn't get round to writing anything, my great-grandmother, Annie May, will post the budget to the next person, if necessary without a contribution from her husband, Edmund. He is threatening to drop out of the budget as he is just too busy and Vera says it does seem to me a thousand pities that anyone should drop out. Another fascinating thing about the programme which Vera put into the budget is that one of the siblings added to it after World War One. It's Bernard's writing as the old budgets were stored in his wardrobe and he regularly got them out and reread the old letters, reminding his siblings about some of the things they'd written about decades later. At the end of the First World War, Bernard was rereading Vera's 1910 funeral procession letter as he's remembered the many European monarchs who were present at the funeral. Handwritten in pencil, next to many of the royal names, was their fate during the First World War. Next to the German emperor, it says, deposed next to the king of greece it says assassinated the king of spain the king of portugal the turkish crown prince and the prince of bavaria bernard has written deposed next to their names next to grand duke michael alexandrovich of russia it says shot by bolsheviks and bernard has written assassinated next to the names archduke ferdinand of austria and the crown prince of serbia There's a famous photo, which you can easily find online, of the nine European sovereigns taken at Windsor Castle after the funeral of Edward VII. Seated are the King of Spain, King George V and the King of Denmark. And standing behind them are the King of Norway, the King of Bulgaria, the King of Portugal, the Emperor of Germany, the King of Greece and the King of Belgium. All eight of them are related to George V. Two were his uncles, one was a brother in law as well as a first cousin, another was also a first cousin, and three more were distant cousins from the Saxe Coburg family. Four of them were deposed and one was assassinated, and out of the nine monarchies in that photo, only five still exist today. When Bernard looked at the 1910 funeral programme, after World War I and scrawled, deposed and assassinated next to the names of these monarchs, I wonder if he was aware of the history he was acknowledging. I reckon he will be flabbergasted that I am telling you this today. Vera wrote her letter on May the 21st, the day after the royal funeral procession. She's not the only sibling to write down her impressions. Wilfred is the troublesome black sheep of the family. He's been in rural Canada building roads for the last decade and has returned to England. A week after the royal funeral, Wilfred wrote his budget letter on the 28th of May. Dear budget readers, The funeral procession has been the chief event since I wrote last in the budget, but I have little to add to Vera's excellent account. Bernard got us excellent seats and we had a very good view. The curious thing was that none of us saw the king's little dog, and in spite of the photographs, I don't think it was in the procession in Edgware Road. The troops were a fine body of men, and except for one detachment of Highlanders, who were quite boys, were of good size. The police and soldiers kept the route very well. On June the 7th, Edmund commented on the funeral procession in his letter. Vera, I fail to understand how you can write such excellent budget letters in addition to all your family correspondence, for my share of which I again thank you. I would not have missed your account of the funeral procession for anything. I'm very glad the budget did not miss me this time and I will do my best for the future As you have kindly included me again, Enid had been sitting watching the procession in the Edgware Road with three of her siblings. But by the end of June 1910, she was at home in Liverpool and wrote this: "I see that I've said nothing about the King's funeral procession, but really Vera has given such a splendid account that there is nothing more to add." It was a most wonderful and impressive sight, but the orderly and reverent behaviour of the crowds was the most striking feature of the whole. I am astonished to find what very large numbers of people from Liverpool, Wolverhampton and Leeds went up to town for it. I only mention these three towns because I appear to have been in them lately, but no doubt it is the same all over the country. And Bernard commented on the procession in his letter written on the 1st of July. Vera has given you such a good account of the king's funeral that there is very little left to say. It was a wonderful sight and well worth seeing, but it was very difficult to realise that it was a funeral procession. The only solemn moment was when the head of the procession came in sight and the order was given to the troops lining the route to rest on their arms reversed. It was very impressive to see them standing so still with their heads bowed over their rifles. But with the arrival of the procession, one's interest was chiefly centred in identifying the different regiments and great personages. Even the gun carriage with the coffin quite failed to attract one's sympathy. It was so low that it could hardly be regarded as the chief feature of the procession. The pole and the regalia looked rather tawdry in the blazing sunshine. As Vera says, the Duke of Norfolk was a surprise. He was well-mounted and had a saddlecloth, apparently of white silk. He was so splendidly ugly that one had to accord him a somewhat grudging admiration. The people who really made a sensation were Lord Roberts and Kitchener. A sort of loud whispering passed all along the crowd as they went by. Lord Rosebery was very tightly done up in a green uniform and looked rather heated. "'It seems very odd that he should take part in the procession as a Scottish archer. "'The German Emperor was the most regal person in the procession. "'The four army chaplains looked absurd in their varied get-up. "'I suppose it would not be feasible for the clergy to take part in a procession of this nature, "'but it would be a great improvement, I think. "'Also, a procession ought always to have banners.' I think the grief over King Edward's death was very genuine, but the papers were very extreme in their eulogies for the first week or two. I expect the new king will be quite as much a success as his father. He may not perhaps be so popular, but he will be none the worst for that. He has a better lot of friends and will not, I expect, be surrounded by Jews and brewers and brand new millionaires. It's surprising how the stories about the new king's previous marriage have cropped up again. One reason why I don't believe in it, as the first wife is not always the same person. Everybody now says it was the daughter of Admiral Seymour. But I can remember when I first came to London 17 years ago, hearing that it was a daughter of Admiral Tryon who went down in the Victoria in 1893. Indeed, this was given as a reason why the Admiral so strangely lost his head. He was supposed to be so worried and upset at the approaching marriage of the Duke of York and Princess Mary. But there's always plenty of detail in these scandals. I'm glad to see that several bishops, as well as the Dean of Norwich, have been strongly contradicting the story. With regard to scandals, have any of you heard this extremely absurd and impossible story of Winston Churchill? You remember young Lord Percy dying suddenly in Paris a few months ago. They say he was really killed in a duel, which he fought with Winston Churchill. The reason being that he was so annoyed with Winston because he treated his Winston's wife so very badly and neglected her so one only has to be a liberal cabinet minister to have these weird stories told about one on July the ninth, Cuthbert wrote in his letter with regard to the new king I quite agree with Bernard in the main as a man he will probably be an improvement but of course he can't have the same influence abroad and I don't suppose he ever will I heard the Winston Churchill story a long time ago from my usual admiralty source. Only the version I heard was that the Duke of Westminster was the man who fought with Lord Percy. Winston was not in Paris at that time. Vera, Enid, Wilfred and Bernard all watched the funeral procession and Wilfred says he is sure the king's little dog didn't walk past them on Edgware Road. Very interesting that none of the siblings saw the little dog Caesar, as the procession passed just below them. Yet they've all seen photographs in the newspapers. The procession started at Buckingham Palace and headed to Westminster Hall. Then the procession continued through the London streets to Paddington Station, where many people got on the train. At Windsor, the procession reassembled and continued through the town to the castle, where the funeral service took place. There are several black and white films, but they're confusing and it's not easy to distinguish the locations. It's possible that the King's Charger, without a rider, followed by a Highlander with Caesar the Little Dog, took part in the procession only as far as Westminster Hall. Perhaps it was thought that the much longer second half of the procession might have been too much for the small dog, too many distractions, etc., In the black and white film which lasts 7 minutes 31 called Funeral of King Edward the Seventh: the Peacemaker you can spot the little white terrier at 7 minutes 16 seconds just behind the dark horse with no rider. I reckon it is London streets and not Windsor but I'm not sure. In one of the 1910 film clips you can see multiple horses pulling the gun carriage which I think happened during the procession in London. In another section, you can see naval ratings with ropes pulling the now empty gun carriage away from the steps of St George's Chapel in Windsor. I suspect the procession in London had horses pulling the gun carriage as far as Paddington Station. Then the coffin travelled by train to Windsor. Then the naval ratings met the train at Windsor and pulled the gun carriage and the coffin up to the castle. The issue with the black and white films of the funeral procession are that they are made up of multiple short clips which have been combined together, not always in sequential order. The clip with the stripy canopy overhead, it looks like it's Westminster Hall where the coffin is placed onto the gun carriage. But in one clip, the procession moves off left to right away from the stripy canopy. In another clip, the same happens, but the procession moves off from right to left in the opposite direction. But 1910 is very early for moving footage, so we're watching very basic filming and editing. The old film clips are also confusing, as they show the kings and distinguished guests walking in the procession. Yet Bernard clearly mentions the Duke of Norfolk on horseback, and Vera mentions many horses. I wonder if some of the dignitaries walked in some sections of the procession and rode horses in other sections. I'm not sure. I'm also perplexed as to why Bernard says the Duke of Norfolk was splendidly ugly and why Vera said he did not seem to me nearly such an ugly man as people make out. Poor bloke. I've just found a photo of him online and he looks quite normal. Perhaps it was just gossipy newspapers. Other accounts in the same decade were clearly discussing if Winston Churchill and Herbert Asquith were alcoholics or not. And the story of Lord Percy possibly dying as a result of a duel with Churchill regarding Churchill's wife is a great story, although clearly untrue. The gossip about King George V was that there had possibly been an earlier wife. Bernard is pleased to hear that several bishops have declared this to be false and Cuthbert says he hears these stories from his usual source at the Admiralty. I hope you found Vera's letter interesting. You might like to go and watch a couple of the black and white 1910 films online. Apologies for such a long gap in podcasts. It's taken me ages to get this episode finished, as I struggle to work out exactly what to say. I returned to Australia from Europe, having done so much fascinating research on the Machel Cox family, where I found many treasures in the attic of family houses, as well as visiting the Bodleian Library again. And I have so many hockey stories about Vera and great comp to write. Since I got back, I've been in a bit of a funk and have found writing difficult. Anyway, I hope you found this interesting. If you're still listening, maybe write me a review or give me a rating on the app you were using. Or send me an email, matchelcoxletters at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening.